We'll look at our ninth of ten sessions in marriage matters in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly make some announcements. One, this Wednesday and for the next several Wednesdays because of semester break, holiday break, we will not have our midweek program. So don't show up this Wednesday unless you're showing up for the child protection training which we will be doing Wednesday night, and that's for those who want to be involved in our children's ministries. It's a requirement that you take that training. If you haven't registered for that, you can do it before you leave today at the information desk in the lobby. But no other ministries this Wednesday or the next several. We don't start up again until January 20th. Next Sunday night at 6.30 is our Adult Christmas Fellowship. And uh, in the program, there's a large paragraph about what we ask you to bring for food and also some of the games that we'll, we'll be doing. You need to bring some items for that as well. But it is the Adult Christmas Fellowship, so that's uh, 18 and above. And we always have a great time with that. If, you've, uh, if you're new to our church particularly, it's a good way to get to know folks in a, a non-church kind of setting. Next Sunday night, 6.30. We have today and one more week of this series, Marriage Matters. Two weeks from today, we will not have the Discovering God Sunday School Hour at all. The 27th, two days after Christmas, we're only having one service that day. It'll be our worship service at 11 o'clock. So if you show up at 9.30, there may be some people at the building, but no uh, service is going on at that point two weeks from today. Just the one service, 11 o'clock on the 27th. And then after that, January the 3rd and the first four Sundays of January is our Newcomers Orientation and a new members class. Both of those will go on at the same time, four weeks. The newcomers orientation is a class that I teach that gives information about our church and who we are and what we believe and where we've come from and what we hope to accomplish in the future to help you make a decision as to whether or not this is where God would have you join and serve and grow. It's only for information. You're not obligating yourself to anything by attending. But if you're new to our church, if you've never taken the newcomer's orientation, I urge you to mark that, those four Sundays, the 3rd through the 24th, during this hour for that. Those of you who are not in the new members class, that is people who've joined since the last new members class, you'll get an invitation for that. But those of you that are not in either one of those, newcomers or new members, you'll be in here and for those four weeks, we'll have uh, other guys, as we always do, uh, teaching for us. Uh, substituting for me, and then I'll be back January the 31st to uh, lead this class. Last announcement is that uh, we have, we're taking a collection for two needy families for Christmas. Uh, one is a family that's associated with the daycare that meets in our building, community kids, uh, preschool and daycare. And then we have one family in our church that we're looking to help for Christmas gifts for their children as well. If you're on our email list, you got that email from me a couple of days ago. I apologize for the short notice on that, but we just got the information about the needs of these two families this past week. Uh, If you want to help, we've got to do that this week. In fact, by next Sunday, we need to have the gifts. And two of our ladies are heading up organizing that, Chris Roberts and Julie Crock. And uh, if you uh, haven't already talked to them, you can do that at the information desk, which is out in the lobby. If you don't know who they are, go to the information desk and they'll either be there or the folks there can uh, pass a note on to them with your contact information so that they can give you instructions. All right. This is the ninth of 10 weeks in marriage matters. And I've been saying throughout that marriage is for this purpose. Marriage is for the purpose of each helping the other to become more like Christ. 
And I have reviewed with you the fact that God's purpose in creating is for us to reflect his character back to him. Sin has distorted the image of God with which he created us. And God is in the process of restoring that image. And relationship in general and marriage in particular is designed for those engaged in that relationship to help each other in the process of becoming more like Christ or to think of it as the mirrors that we were made to be reflecting God back to God have now been cracked. And so the image that God sees is not obliterated. We're still made in the image of God, but it's now distorted. And God is on a repair project, a restoration project for those mirrors. And one of the means that he uses to repair those mirrors is marriage. So you have a spouse, if you are married, for the purpose of helping that spouse to become more like Christ. And that's why each aspect of this series, whether when we looked at communicating with honesty, when we looked at the need to engage in forgiveness with one another, the need to lovingly confront one another with with sin. Last week, we looked at the unity and intimacy that is to be characteristic of the marriage relationship. All of those things, communication, forgiveness, loving confrontation, intimacy, they are all emulating the character of God. So marriage helps fulfill the purpose for which God has made us, namely to reflect him back to him. And you have a spouse to help him or her become more like Jesus. And all of the things we've been looking at are all aspects of the character of God. God communicates honestly. So we are to communicate honestly with each other. God forgives. We are to forgive. God lovingly confronts when someone is wrong, when someone has sinned. So therefore, we engage in conflict for good. That's what we saw a couple of weeks ago. God is has unity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a very close, intimate unity. The intimacy that is to be seen between husband and wife is a reflection of that. All of these are emulating the character of God. Now today, we're going to be looking at the roles of husband and wife as they relate to authority and submission. And those also are reflections of the character of God. That we are going to see that within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is the exercise of authority and submission. And in our marriages, there is to be that same uh, exercise of authority and submission by the husband and the wife, respectively, And those reflect the character of this God who has this authority submission arrangement as well. So on page 59, first page in today's notes, you see it's titled His Role and Her Role. And we're going to look at Jesus' view of authority in just a moment. But before we get into those notes on Jesus and authority, I want to make what I think is a necessary, I hope helpful distinction between power and authority, power and authority. Sometimes we use those as if they're the same thing, but they are not. What's the difference between power and authority? Power is the ability to force someone in the direction you require. Power is ability to force Authority is the right to exercise power. 
You're authorized to do that. Now, if somebody encounters you on the street and they have a gun and you don't, it means you probably aren't a member of CBC if you don't. Because, like, everybody here packs heat. I'm scared. I'm scared of this congregation. I don't want to hack anybody off here, okay? But if you, if you encounter somebody, they have a gun, you don't. They have power to force you, give me your money or whatever it is. But they're not authorized to do that, correct? That's an unauthorized use of power. If a police officer encounters you, you encounter, and he has to pull his weapon because of something you've done in uh, contrary to the law, then he not only has the power to force you, he's authorized to do that as well. So you can have power without authority. And in the case of husbands, husbands have power, but that power is to be used in an authorized way. The Bible refers to our wives, men, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, 1 Peter 3, 7, as weaker vessels, not inferior, but weaker. And that weakness includes a number of things, but one of them certainly is physically weaker. Uh, the average woman is weaker physically than the average man. It's just a fact. That's why you have ladies tees on a golf course. Because you can't hit the ball as far. You guys have heard me say, I'm not much of a golfer, but I'm not, I'm not teeing off at the ladies tee. I tee off at the men's tee. And then my ball goes to the ladies tee. <laughs> About 50 yards ahead. And, you know, you've got in sports, you've got the women's NBA and you've got the men's NBA and all of that. And there have been times where a woman's tried to make it to the NBA and it hasn't happened as, as yet. And that's not because of inferiority. That's just because we're made different. And it's just a fact that there is a physical difference. So men have power. They have physical power over their wives. But that power is to be used in authorized ways. It's to be used to protect our wives. It's to be used to give our wives a sense of security. Never, ever, ever to intimidate our wives. And let me just say, men, uh, and, and I will be happy to say this to you, and I mean this. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a real tough guy, but I get angry about this, so I'll be tough about this. And I'm not just saying this behind the security of this desk. You're a coward. You're a coward. If you intimidate your wife physically. And you need to repent. If you use your power to intimidate your wife. By your words and heaven forbid. By your hands. You have that power. It's to be used for her good. And not to intimidate her in an unauthorized way. You are violating what God Almighty has placed you in position to do. Now, with that, the difference between power and authority. Top of page 59. Jesus and authority. He recognized two things about authority. First, it exists for the benefit of those who live under it. 
And secondly, it must be an expression of love. That's what you're authorized to do. When you're in a position of authority, you have been authorized by God to use that position for the benefit of those who are under you and for it to be an expression of love. As Jesus followers, our understanding and expression of authority should be as radical, surprising, and utterly other-oriented as Jesus is. And you see this in what Jesus said in Mark 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You know, not much, just whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand, the other at your left in glory. (laughs) So these guys have the audacity to come and say, hey, we know you are where the action is. You're the king, and when you set up your kingdom, how about me here and him there? In verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Sure, we can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, let's stop there for a minute. You know, in all likelihood, the ten are upset, not because, hey, you guys shouldn't be asking such a selfish thing. It's, they're upset, like, what about us? Why do you guys get? How did you guys beat us to the punch? So when they heard about it, they were indignant. And Jesus called them together and he said, you know that those are regarded, who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John ask these questions because they recognize that Jesus has the authority to offer those positions that they're seeking. And that one day he will rule on a throne. They want to have authority from Jesus and the recognition and power that go with it. They may well even be picturing ease and comfort as they're in position to order others around to do their bidding. Jesus doesn't deny he has this authority, but he does say that being in authority is not about ease and comfort or power and glory. Instead, it requires sacrifice, responsibility, and testing. This is contrary to the lord it over approach that he denounces in verse 42 that often includes demanding submission, showing disrespect, and so on. Instead of the worldly approach to authority, Jesus says that his followers exercise authority this way, by serving others, by assuming the position of a servant, by meeting people at their level, assuming their station in life, doing without for their benefit, and making decisions for their well-being. So as we look at the roles of husbands and wives, it's important for us to understand Jesus' view of authority, husbands, and then on page 61 in a minute, we can talk about husbands in that role. But it's also important, page 60, for us to understand Jesus' view of servanthood. Below is an event in the life of Jesus in which he illustrates what he meant when he said in Mark 10:45 that we just read, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And you see we have John 13 there. I'm not going to read that now. You're familiar, most of you, with that episode. If not, I encourage you to read that. But in John 13, it's the night before Jesus dies. He's, got, he's gathered with his first followers, the apostles, in an upper room. 
And he demonstrates for them what love looks like. And he demonstrates that that love by serving them in washing their feet, a menial task designed for a servant. Most homes in Palestine would have a, a basin at the door, and if they could afford it, a servant who would actually wash the feet of those who came in from the dusty roads with uh, sandals on. No one had made provision for that prior to their dinner. And so Jesus gives them this illustration. God come as man, bows down with a towel and a basin, and washes the feet of his followers. This is what it means to love others. This is what it means to serve others. Jesus is saying. And in the middle of page 60, here's a well-known statement regarding the form of Jesus' earthly ministry. Look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. uh, By the way, that A there does not mean he was a God. That's a footnote. Okay, so you can, you can get rid of the A. In being very nature, God, the one and only, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, these passages are about how Jesus used authority to serve. And they offer us a sampling of the attitudes and characteristics of one who is a servant of others. He or she will be willing to give his or her own life for the sake of others. They will do the hard work of serving another practically. They will give up their own right to be served. And they will not use their authority for their own advantage. These passages show us God's grace toward us in demonstrating how Jesus stooped down to where we are to provide what we need. All right. Now that puts us in good position to look at the role of a husband then. As the leader in his home with authorization by God to lead. But it's with that backdrop of Jesus' view of authority and Jesus' view of servanthood. The role of a husband. God calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 25 there, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself because they are one flesh. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. Just as Christ does the church, we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. Now, men, notice the end of this love that we're to express to our wives. Christ loves the church so that he presents her as a pure bride without spot or wrinkle. 
And your first responsibility in leading your wife is to lead her spiritually so that she becomes more holy. So husbands, here's a first test for you. Is your wife more like Jesus because of her marriage to you? Are you leading her toward Christ-likeness? That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. Our, our first responsibility is in loving our wives, is to, is to, present, them, to present them holy. And this passage, we say in the middle, uses some form of the word love seven times and compares a husband's love for his wife to Christ's love for the church. But rather than providing a list of responsibilities to us as husbands, the focus is on loving. Because our responsibilities are to be founded on the love of Christ. Our love is to extend to a willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his life up for the church. Men, we need to ask ourselves, would I, would I give my physical life for my wife and, and if you have children? Would I do that? Now, in the abstract, we all would say, sure, yeah, I'm a man's man. I'd stand in the breach. But notice what I say here. We can be sure we're, 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 that love is to extend to a willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice, but we can be sure that we will not make that sacrifice. If we're unwilling to make the much smaller day-to-day sacrifices, it's like, yeah, I'd give my life for my wife, but I'm not going to load the dishwasher. Or take clothes out of the dryer or tuck the kids into bed. Or take a few minutes to pray with her over something she's anxious about. If not grounded in Christ's love, a husband's authority can be easily misused and abused. I've alluded to some of the ways that can be abused, some of the awful ways that can be abused, intimidation, physical. But here are a couple of others. By hindering his wife's growth. A husband might use his authority in a controlling way and insist on making all the decisions. But doing this will not encourage either partner to grow in wisdom. A desire for control may expose a lack of trust in God. It may be a way to combat fear. The husband may fear rejection. He may micromanage out of a sense of insecurity. He may fear that if he does not personally hold everything together, it falls apart. He may have an appetite for power or simply having things done for his own convenience. To the extent that a husband uses his authority to manage his own fears and feed his own desires, he's subverting Jesus' authority and enthroning himself. So here's another checkpoint for us men in our role. One is, am I, is, is my wife more like Christ as a result of our relationship? That's one. But then here, am I moving my wife toward her becoming all that she can and should be before God? That is... She is a person made in the image of God, and she has particular gifts and abilities. Are you nurturing those? Are you helping those? Are you hindering those? And one of the ways that you can hinder those is by being a tyrant. Making all of the decisions, delegating nothing to to her, criticizing the things she does do, demeaning her, that's hindering your wife's growth. And then another way... And related is by by not knowing your wife. Bottom of page 61, a husband can make wise decisions about how to love his wife, or excuse me, he cannot if he does not know her. 
If he does not know our hopes or dreams or fears or desires or strengths or weaknesses. Patient, careful communication allows a couple to build unity in marriage and reveals unilateral decision-making for the failure to love that it really is. Unilateral. I make the decisions and I impose them on you and that's a lack of love. So here's another checkpoint, guys. When was the last time you talked to your wife and you asked her, what do you need? What can I do for you? How can I help you in the responsibilities that you have within our home? Now, before we move to the next page and we look at the role of the woman, I want to bridge the role of the husband and the role of the wife this way. In Ephesians 5, at the top of page 61, husbands are singled out by Paul who wrote that to love your wives. And as you read through the book of Ephesians, and in particular from chapters 4, 5, and 6, the final three of those six chapters, where he talks about, where he talks about practical responsibilities of Christian living, including in the home. Chapter 6 begins with, children, obey your parents and the Lord. But here he's talked about husbands and wives in chapter 5. And as you read through all of that, you won't find him saying, wives love your husbands. So what does that mean? Husbands love your wives. But as he talks about the wives, he doesn't say wives love your husbands. At least not in that chapter, in that book. Instead, what does he say? Wives, you guys all know it, and you're all going to roll your eyes. Submit. Husbands love, wives submit. So why is that? Aren't wives to love their husbands? Well, of course. And in fact, in Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, in talking about the roles of older women and younger women, the older women are told to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Teach them by mentoring them how to love their husbands. Titus chapter 2. And what about the men? Are the men not supposed to submit to the women? Well, it turns out they are. In fact, in top of page 61 again, verse 21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that's a command to husbands and wives. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it is true that men are to submit, and it is true that women are to love, but in this crucial passage in Ephesians 5 and 6 about family life, why does Paul emphasize love for the men and submission for the women? Here's why. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, let me remind you what went wrong. Adam was made, created by God, to lead his home. We see that in a number of ways. I've gone through it in the Genesis series, so I won't bore you with that now. So just take my word for it now. Adam was made first, and Adam was made to lead his wife, and she was made to be a helper for him. But that leadership was subverted in Genesis chapter 3. The dialogue that takes place between the serpent and the woman is between the serpent and the woman. And as you read through that in Genesis 3, and the serpent said to the woman, and the woman said to the serpent, and you've got them talking back and forth, you, you need to be wondering, where is the first guy that was made? Whatever happened to that guy? 
Where is Adam while his family is being spiritually destroyed? And you get to verse 6 and it says, The woman took the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. Where is he? He's there. He's watching what's going on and he's not leading. And as a result of that sin and that failure of leadership, this is why this is called Adam's sin, by the way. She's the one doing the dialogue. She's the one who takes and eats it first. She get right? But it's called Adam's sin. Why? Because Adam was supposed to be leading. Adam's responsible. God meets out consequences to the serpent, upon the ground, the environment, upon the man in pain and difficulty. You will toil to eke out a living. And then to the woman in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. And he says that your desire is going to be for your husband. But he will rule over you. That's what it says. Genesis 3 and verse 16. Your desire, ladies, is going to be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, that's in the context of God giving out punishments. And the punishment for the woman is that she's going to desire her husband, but he's going to rule over you. Now, how's that a punishment? You know, for the men, you think of your wife desiring you, desiring you sexually. That's a good thing. So how's that a punishment? But it's not desire sexually in Genesis 3.16. And how do we know this? Because in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. Genesis 4 and verse 7. You remember in, in, in Genesis 4, that's the first murder. And Cain murders his, his brother Abel. And God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, uh, what have you done? And God says to him in verse 7, quote, sin is crouching at the door. It, sin, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, when it says sin desires to have you, Cain, but you must rule over it, it's the exact same Hebrew phrase as in chapter 3 and verse 16. Sin desires to control you, Cain. But you will rule over it. Now go back to the woman. You're going to desire to control the deal. And your husband is going to respond by sinfully ruling over you. This is the consequence of sin. The battle of the sexes starts in Genesis 3.16. And the general course for males and females is... Males are going to be passive in their leadership, sinning in passivity or sinning in sinful aggressiveness to squelch the lack of submissiveness on their wives. None of this comes naturally for us is the point. Husbands loving their wives and leading for their benefit doesn't come naturally to sinful husbands like me and you guys. And wives... Joyfully submitting to their husbands' leadership does not come naturally for the wives. Now, I haven't cleared this with my wife. So those of you who pack heat, protect me after we're, after we're done. 
But Kim and I thank the Lord in his grace 30 years and we enjoy a wonderful relationship. And if you know Kim, you know uh, how kind she is, how sensitive she is, how soft-spoken she is, all of that. So you would never know that when we were first married, she was really bossy. I mean, like, really bossy. And I was really passive. And in the first year of our marriage, that's the way this thing was going. Kim bosses me around, and I let her. Now, I'll give you, I could bore you with all the reasons for that. It comes out of our upbringing. It comes out of our sinfulness. But that's the way it was manifesting itself early on as these two 23-year-olds have their first year of marriage. And some of you have heard me tell the story of how it was going that direction. It was creating great problems for us. On a Friday night, a year after we were married, we were driving around trying to decide where are we going to have dinner. And Kim's telling me where we're going to have dinner. And then I'm trying to not be as passive. And so I shoot back. No, I don't want to go there. And we're driving around. And now hypoglycemia is kicking in for both of us. And we're both irritable and we're just jawing at each other. And this goes on for like a couple hours, a couple hours. And the more hungry we get, the more irritable we get. We finally stop at a ram's horn that no longer exists on Telegraph Road near Grand River. And we go in there and we have this crucial conversation. Because it's been going this way for us. And she's playing the wrong role, and I'm playing the wrong role. And thanks be to God, we had both grown up in Christian homes, and we knew enough about God's Word to know this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And after we got a little food in us, we were able to talk. And I remember saying to her, when are we going to start doing what God says? And by God's grace, we made a mutual decision that I'm going to play my role to lead our home and she's going to play her role to follow my loving leadership. And it wasn't overnight and it wasn't the next week and it wasn't the next month. But over the next year and over the next two years, God grew us in our respective roles. But my point to you is, friends, it didn't come naturally for either one of us. In fact, our natural inclinations were to go in opposite directions. Passivity. Bossiness. It's looking for a better word, sorry. So why does Paul emphasize husband's love? Because men, naturally, that's not what we're going to do. And why does he emphasize women's submit? Because naturally, that's not what you're going to do. This has got to be emphasized for us. Those roles were reversed in Genesis 3. They continue to be reversed in homes that are represented here and throughout God's world. Now, how's a husband going to submit, though? Because if he's been placed in a position of authority, we only think of submission as authority. 
And it certainly applies to that. But the word submit, men, means literally this, to place yourself under. That's what submit means. Place yourself under. So a submarine is under the water. You know, subway is under the road. Sub is under. And submit means place yourself under. In the case of the wife to her husband, she places herself under the authority of her husband. But in the case of the husband, he's not placing himself under the authority of his wife. What is he placing himself under? He's called to love her, which means he's to place himself under the needs of his wife. Guys, we're called to submit, place ourselves under the needs of our wives and our children, our families. So now, page 62, the role of the wife. God calls wives to submit to their husbands as they submit to the Lord. Having an accurate understanding of biblical authority makes it much easier to understand what submission looks like in marriage. So again now, Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Why? Because for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The wife must respect her husband. The Bible instructs wives to submit to and respect their husbands. But in submitting to her husband, a wife is ultimately submitting to God himself because accepting and respecting her husband's authority is a way of entrusting herself to Christ's care and authority over her, just as the church must do. Now, that's an important line right there, ladies. Because whenever you are in a position of authority submission and you're placing yourself under the authority of someone else, it is true, isn't it, that that authority can misuse that position. Therefore, wives are in a vulnerable position. And what is going to allow you to make yourself vulnerable that way? It's because ultimately you're submitting to God. Ultimately, it's not that you're trusting this guy. Ultimately, it's you're trusting God who has given you these instructions. And so, ladies, as you think about your husband and you think about all of his struggles, and you think about whether or not in your mind he's worthy of submission, remember that ultimately you're submitting to God, not him. In the middle of that paragraph, God instructs wives to allow their husbands to love and care for them and to trust that God will care for them even when their husbands do not. Given our fallenness, that may seem impossible, but the power comes from God the Holy Spirit. Now, some misinterpret submission to mean passivity or silence. But notice Psalm 13. David prays to God by appealing to God to act. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Now here's David talking to God, the ultimate authority. And it is one in submission to, to God still is making an appeal to God. And notice the next paragraph. Psalm 13 provides a quick study in honest, open communication. It may be startling to think that David could be that honest with God without being disrespectful, but he's being submissive in a godly way. 
He's being honest in a way that honors who God really is. David is saying, in effect, God, I know that you're truly good and I'm having trouble understanding why you're not doing things differently. Help. Now, ladies, we have that there because submission doesn't mean silence and passivity. Those of us in positions of submission always have the right of respectful appeal. The right of respectful appeal. Now, I said those of us in positions of submission. Everybody here, men included, are all in positions of submission in some realms, right? If you've got a job and you've got a boss, you've got an authority submission relationship. And to your boss, you always have the right of respectful appeal, biblically. But you're to obey your masters like slaves were to obey their masters. You're to be respectful to your boss. Yikes. But you are to be. But you always have the right of respectful appeal to the government. Likewise. That's why we see the the great apostle Paul. He's arrested. He's called to give an account before King Agrippa. You remember in the book of Acts. And he makes a respectful appeal to the one in authority. So it's not passivity and and silence. And then that final paragraph on page 62, be careful that your understanding of submission isn't missing important elements of love. For example, some equate correction with disrespect. But as we've seen back on pages 37 to 44 on conflict, the Bible considers correction one of the most basic responsibilities of love. A wife's responsibility to love her husband is certainly not less than her obligation to anybody else. So respectfully correcting a husband is part of a wife's love for him. In the context of the role God has given you as a wife in marriage, ask yourself, how am I expressing love to my husband and encouraging him to mature into the image of Christ? So ladies, it doesn't mean passivity and silence as you watch your husband take your family over a cliff. Husbands, if you are wise in the way you lead your family, you will know your wife, know what her gifts are, know, for example, that she's better with money than you are. I'm just making that up. But maybe she's better with money than you are. So if she's better with money than than you are, then why don't you guys make an agreement that she'll write the checks? And you're using her gifts and abilities in that way and encouraging her in her gifts and abilities. And then on page 63, remember your common calling. Marriage roles are to reflect the character of Christ. 1 Peter 2 and 3, we have listed for you there. And 1 Peter 2 is about how Jesus made respectful appeal to authorities in existence, in government, when he walked the earth, even though Jesus had done no wrong. 1 Peter 2 says he was still respectful in his appeal. And then it goes on to say, wives in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way as Jesus was submissive to earthly authorities, even though he's God. And was respectful in his appeal. In the same way now, wives, be submissive to your husbands, chapter 3 and verse 1. And then it goes in verse 7, last part of that italicized passage. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Wives in the same way as what? In the same way as Christ. Husbands in the same way as what? In the same way as Christ. Each different roles, 
but a common calling to reflect the character of Christ. That fourth paragraph, this means that whatever your role, whether leading, following, or both, you're called to look to Jesus, not merely as your example, but most importantly, as the only one who can empower you to live out your ultimate calling to love. In addressing people who are squabbling about their roles in the church, the Bible says, if I speak in the tongues of angels but have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. No matter your role in marriage, no matter how important you think your role is, no matter how good you think you are at it, if you're not acting in love, then what you have is is of no value. The different roles in marriage are but different expressions of love. Husband and wife are called to come together to love one another, to do what's in the best interest of another. That's what love is. But we're called to do that in different roles. One in authority and lovingly leading, one in submitting and following that loving leadership. Now, I'll give you one last illustration and we got to be done. But this kind of loving relationship in different roles is precisely what you see between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? So the one true and living God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are all absolutely equal in who they are. They are all God. God the Son is fully God. God the Father is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God. They're not each a third God. They're each fully God. And yet, not only are they equal in who they are, they have different roles that they play. The Son submits to the Father. So it's important, men and women, for us to understand that according to the Bible, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither male nor female. Here's what that means. That we are equal before Christ. That we are equal in Christ. That we have the same spiritual status before God. That a submissive role is not an inferiority role. How do we know this? Because Jesus, who is fully God, Christ, who is fully God, submits to the Father. And in no way can God be inferior to God. It's a functional role that the Son plays and the Spirit plays. Equal in who they are, different in the roles that God has assigned us. And using each of those roles to love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word and telling us about yourself, about how you interact as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then how you have made your crowning achievement in creation, humanity, made in your image. You've given us the good gift of relationship with one another. It is not good that those that you've created be alone. Our God is one who has for all eternity enjoyed relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you've made us to enjoy relationship. And you've made marriage as a particular relationship to express the unity and the intimacy. And within the the crucible of that relationship, to express your character and how we communicate and how we forgive and how we lovingly confront. And now, Lord, you've instructed us in your word as to how we're to play different roles, though we are absolutely equal before you. No superiority or inferiority, simply functional differences as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us 
Help us to appreciate, help us to even marvel at the wisdom that ordained men and women, husbands and wives, to play the roles that you have assigned. Thank you for the institution of marriage and for the instructions that you have given us in your word on it. And Lord, help us, we, we, we must have your help, to resist our natural tendencies as men to be passive or to sinfully respond to the sinful responses of our wives in a, in a desire to lead rather than follow and then to, as it were, put our sinful boot down and rule over our wives in a sinful way. Lord, our natural tendencies go opposite what you have called us to do. But in Christ and by your spirit and through your grace, we are able to approximate this side of heaven, what you have made marriage to be. Lord, may these instructions be put into place in the homes that are represented here. And as a result, may our homes, some of them go from places who are, that, are, that are tension-filled and battlegrounds. May they go from that to a place of refuge and of peace and of safety and security where Christ dwells and is, and is obviously present and displayed. Only you can do this, Lord, but you most assuredly can do this. We ask you to do so. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.